0: This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech
1: leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello clean tech enthusiasts, my name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model training you, giving the inventory tools, software and support you'll need no royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day. Do it. Go to home efficiency.com.
0: Urban magnets. So let's talk about some things and and say, are they an urban magnet or not? And I think they're, Expression of complete urban magnet helps. So let's take the Garment District in Toronto, um, back to Spadina and King. It's got aspects of it. So it, it had manufacturing. I'm not sure it still does have any, you know... Garment making things, but they also mm-hmm. had an aesthetic cluster. So they had furniture stores, um, and they had trompe d'oeil. They had yeah. a, um, a theater space I went to at one point. It was repurposed fifth floor during the Fringe Festival, I think. They have to specifically the streetscape has been decorated with bobbins and um, thread spools and needles in various places yes. to create that that last piece of the urban magnet, which is its. Um, The architecture and design includes elements that make it feel like a living room for the people
1: who are in that activity. Thank you. And that's a useful um, segue onto a couple of important things. So one is that uh, what you've described is, I'm going to call it decoration. And, and I, I don't call it in the sense that, that um, um, architects are often very snobby when they use the word decoration, and and, and 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 that's not inconsequential. Decoration can be something that can give meaning. When it's highly rendered in the way that, 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 that Doug Copeland does it, it can be extremely powerful as a way of, of giving identity and character to urban spaces. When we talk about urban design in the urban magnets context, largely what we're talking about is... Um, the ability for the space to support the activity in a way that gives gives it identity. So, um, if you think of um, so, I'm trying to think of the. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in the garment district in Toronto. Something exactly to the streetscapes, but is there? Uh, if you think of that, you you, used to, you identified something very important, which is the front and back. Um, so, what we've tended to do in places like garment districts is celebrate just the retail. Uh, I used to work down at uh, 611 Alexander Street, which used to have a very active, um, which in the uh, east side of Vancouver, which used to have a very active garment manufacturing. There's this amazing choreography of um, this massive outflow of, oddly enough, I mean, I'm sure there's a historical reason for this, but I couldn't completely understand, almost exclusively Asian women in their 40s and 50s that would flow into the building at, at 7 in the morning, flow out of the building at 3 in the morning three in the afternoon. And and there's kind of this, this, this extraordinary call and most of it was opaque, but it created a strong sense of identity that we knew we weren't in Yale town, right? Yes. And so, so some of it is, how do you, how do you support and, and, and create, um, make those activities visible for the reason of authenticity? And I think uh, it's, it's, it's such an interesting and, and opportunistic challenge. And how do you do it? So, so often these things, people say, well, I have to be extremely expensive. But think of that you, you have traveled widely. And I bet your favorite places in the world aren't necessarily the place, places where the buildings are obviously, or even the public spaces are the most expensive, They're the places where you get to share passions with other people in comfortable, character-filled spaces, yeah, well, it's to describe
0: it, one of the things, I, I love the exact magnets that you talk about. I walk past skate parks, and I appreciate the athleticism while not sharing it. Um, parkour is an, an obsession of mine because they're using the built infrastructure and the interstices of the infrastructure yes. to flow gracefully and athletically. And I, I, Every time I see parkour people in downtown Toronto, I stop and watch. Similarly with trials right. bike riding, right? Trials bike riding where they're riding these Modified bicycles with you know virtually no seat in order to yeah. hop them through stuff, and you know it's just performative. They're unselfconscious. They're failing and succeeding, and and generally creating incidental art in the urban space in typically grittier areas. Yeah, parkour people don't get to play on the law courts of Vancouver. All of them, I'm sure they'd love to. Actually,
1: and, and, and it's not interesting. So imagine a parkour magnet, right? Yeah. Think about think because it's you know it's so it's so physically graceful. It's extraordinary, um, and and uh, you know to some extent you could argue that that would be gentrifying something that's intentionally um, set itself out as a piece of alternative culture. But a parkour magnet could be fabulous. Right? Yeah.
0: It would, it would work so well. And so much of the parkour teams support themselves with specialty retail. They've got a distinct aesthetic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think it's emerging. But it's also so hap- – I think some of these things are coming and going so quickly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I was a windsurfer, and now almost nobody windsurfs. I was a kite surfer. I tried to be a kite surfer. Right. A, lot, a lot of people kite surf, but it's challenging as well. Swamish has got an, an urban magnet, but it's the
1: spit. Mm-hmm. So, but that, so th- these are great examples. So one of the things that, that, um, uh, people said, well, you know, let, let's use, go back to your, actually your Squamish fit example. Let's say that, that Squamish were to spend not a huge amount of money, but to spend, you know, a million dollars and really outfit that as a, as a, um, kiteboarding magnet, right? So you'd have, you you'd have a couple of retail stores where you could get your kiteboard fixed. Um, you'd support, uh, on the second weekend of June, you'd have uh, the Squamish kiteboarding festival, blah, 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 blah. And they do all
0: those things, by the way. I, you know, they have specialty, but the spit is you have to go out of town and all the way around and through some stuff and drive out to it. Yeah. And it's perennially at risk of being shut down by the city of Squamish.
1: Which is an interesting one. And some of that is snobbery, right? I mean, and Squamish is interesting because they were self-identified as, um, What's the uh they, they use a term, uh the the best um uh the, the best, best I have to write great- Outdoor recreation capital of the world, or something like that. But, um, but, but you it know, it is pretty amazing. But yeah, it is pretty amazing. Yeah, but I mean, you think about the the quality of watching people climb on the cheap, right? Like yeah. Um, you know, I'm know young- uh, brief briefly,
0: for people who don't know Squamish, it's a uh, small city, large town, uh, about sixty kilometers, about forty miles north of Vancouver. Just go up the Sea to Sky Highway, and uh, when the Sea to Sky Highway turns up towards Whistler Blackcomb, stop, and that's Squamish. It has a thousand foot bluff climbing wall with hiking trails behind it. It has kite surfing. It has hiking. It has all sorts of stuff. It has a, actually a pretty good um, uh, craft brewery as well. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting little town. Oh, and lots and lots
1: of mountain biking. Yeah. And, and what, what you know, if you think about it, I mean, an amazing opportunity to, to have, you know, the, the the culture of Squamish is visible and identifiable, but it's not celebrated in a way that the city is built. No, right? no. They are like, talking like, a bit more about that right now. Um, one of the things I read recently,
0: so one of the things that I'm doing right now um, uh, is I'm working with a small group, a couple of PhDs, one from University of Waterloo, one from Jevedy uh, Consulting Practice. Um, and they were doing a a leading practices for managed retreat in the face of climate risks and adaptation for the National Resources um, Canada. Um, They've contracted us to find good practices from around the world and across Canada, write a report to assist Canadian communities and urban planners and landscape architects to do it better. But one of the things is that Squamish actually has a pretty good Managed Retreat and Climate Adaptation Plan. They're actually forward thinking on this, which is quite interesting to see. You know, you, you don't necessarily think of them that way. But it, and they, I remember reading through the report and they were talking about some of the activity type stuff there. I probably have to go back to that report and share that with you if I find that they actually are thinking of activity magnets in that way.
1: No, uh, it's interesting. It makes me think we should pitch Squamish on going and doing a little, you know, Herbert Magnus presentation. It's a great example, actually, Michael. I'm I'm very appreciative of this one because it's a good. Um, I've done work for um, for Squamish. My wife and I actually did a, a little master plan together for a new city hall, which ended up being slightly shelved. But I think that it's actually a perfect example of the kind of community that would benefit from the magnets idea. Part, part of it is, even though they haven't got a lot of growth, their tax base is not very strong, so they can't, they can't spend $100 million without theater, right? No. And yet they have this extraordinary identity. I mean, and some of it is so simple. Like, um, uh, I mean, you probably had the experience of going and watching people climb on the chief. Mm-hmm. What, what if you're outside the city hall, your little public plaza had a bunch of telescopes trained on the chief so you could see people climbing? And a climbing wall. Yeah, exactly. Those two things, like, um, make it, make it really, um, you know, so much of it is cheap and cheerful. And, and if you think of the parts, we talked a little bit about, um, um, ethnicity and, and the, the, the kind of, uh, isolated and communities that were in, in some senses protecting themselves, but our cities are kind of an accumulation of passions of the past.
0: Yeah and we well, like okay, and that, that's yeah. actually something I was thinking about with the example of the garment district. Um, and also the distillery district and Liberty Square in Toronto. They're artificial retail and community now with, which have signifiers of their past without those activities still being present. They're like a, a lot of the pieces in Silk Falls Creek that have the names yeah. of the types of things they used to do and some decoration. But the, those yeah. things are no longer there. It's it's, it's a nostalgia, not
1: a, a present reality. And I wonder. And so we've wondered. Well, one of the examples um, we talk about a little bit um, in, in the Urban Magnets book is a meatpacking district in New York, which is now almost exclusively gentrified. Yep. Um, but but you know we've speculated, and it is just speculation. Should should in fact there be some um, urban strategy to maintain some of those historic um, uh, uses and and it, it, it's it's often a challenge. i mean, I think that it it can make sense sometimes like you you use the example of of the uh, um, ocean ocean concrete plant uh-huh. in, in and Island. there's actually a lot of uh, there is a've talked to the people at ocean concrete there's a real economic reason for there to be a downtown concrete plant oh yeah. And, and we for use a all sorts lot of, of concrete in yeah exactly uh we'll have to have another discussion about uh, concrete as an environmental catastrophe oh, yeah no um, i've, pub- I've done a lot of work on that
0: and published a lot on that that might be a conversation for another day um yes yeah, so so it we is have about 25 minutes and i would like to lean into you know we've been talking about urban magnets a lot which is fascinating yeah um, but I also, you know, for the audience, one of the things that um, the reason Bruce and I know each other is that his firm, Human Studios, has had the insight that architecture can lead to greater opportunity for social interaction or, if done poorly, lead to um, a failure to connect simply because the architecture funnels people away from one another then into a place where they interact or have the opportunity to direct. And so uh, some people and I are uh, bidding on a proposal with Human Studio, which should be awarded to somebody soon. Um, Mm -hmm. And on a related note, we're taking the same ideas and applying them to physical distancing in COVID, the same technological approach, the same approach to assessing architecture and those types of things. Um, But Bruce, where I wanted to go was your insights on the opportunity for sociability in the built environment because i think that flows out of the urban magnets concept
1: uh, they're they're related um I, I think michael one of the things that connects connects you and i is that we're we're, we're interested in way too many things for all good <laughs> um the uh which is which is you know i, I actually think it's a kind of a career-limiting thing because the people i know that are super successful are interested in one thing they just keep doing it over and over again um uh, but 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 it's it keeps us uh certainly for me it keeps me excited and interested they're related uh, so I, um, I, I I would actually be curious to know your answer to this question. When I looked at my life many many years ago, I kind of went through this process of saying, saying, okay, okay, what what do I do for free? Like, what do I do absolutely naturally, and how is it tied in with what I do for work? And are they the same thing? And they're not absolutely identical. Um, for me, my purpose is around creating authentic environments. And the authentic environment, uh, so Urban Magnets for me is, is, uh, is an aspect of creating authentic environments because it's tied into this issue of how do you give places people that they can celebrate visibly things that they care about, which for me is a definition, one definition of authenticity, is not the only one. Um, the other thing that I think is essential to, to um, authentic experience is just human communication. Like, humans are inherently social animals, and I think architecture has a history, you read widely on this, so you'll know this, of using shorthand for health, for want of a better word. So, for example, um, if you look at the horrific post-war housing developments in London, and to some extent all over the world and many, many monitors. So the idea was simply, well, if you take, you, know, if you, you raise the slums um, and, and many of it was deteriorating housing, we managed to mostly avoid this, this challenge in Vancouver. And you put people in towers they'll have better access to, to light, better access to hygiene, more green space per person. So you can do all the math. And yet um, these places were often fundamentally unsatisfying um, for multiple reasons. Um, and but one of our beliefs is that we have uh, identified at Human Studio a kind of gap. And it's an interesting gap because what we recognized is that, I, I, I'm a, by the way, I, one of the prefaces I'd like to do in this, I am not a believer that the world should be run by data. I think that if you're going to be in the game right now, you've got to know your data. We have so few tools for understanding how people physically move around spaces in any kind of a predictive way. And we have so few tools for saying, OK, how is it that um, you can get spaces that support social connection? So when I was at my previous firm of Dialogue, I led the design of the downtown Eastside Stratkona Public Library with housing, um, YWCA housing for single mothers. Mm-hmm. and. We looked at a, a conventional layout for this with, the, with what's called a double-loaded corridor, so a corridor with units on both sides and a courtyard model. Yep. And we knew that the courtyard model was going to be better for the people living there in terms of literally their ability to make friends with their neighbors. You're going to step out and you're going to see your neighbor's front door. So if they were stepping out at the same time, you would be able to say hi, and, and those kind of more neighbors. Because exactly you can see across the courtyard
0: to the exact I mean, and I think the 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 distance you came up with was twenty feet, about six meters. Um, Yeah, you know, just for that ability to make eye
1: contact and wave. Exactly. And if you look at it, you you are a possible urban. What I'm going to challenge you to is next time. Next time you're walking along um, a street anywhere, it could be in, in in Vancouver, it could be anywhere, but. But look at, the, this, look at the difference in the street where you can recognize someone on the sidewalk opposite you versus the street where you can't. Mm-hmm. And see what your experiential quality is. Because you know, human contact doesn't necessarily mean um, that you're going to always say hi to people or things like that. But sometimes it's just about the, those kind of scales of what, what, what are the scales that open the possibility for human interaction. Yeah. And we were, I,
0: we're not going to get into any depth on this, but complete streets yeah. Um, yeah. lean into that. They have a, you know, a place that encourages pedestrians and cyclists to be close to one another um, at different paces. But they have the trees that shade this, the things which make it pleasant <clears throat> in rain or in, in heat for pedestrian traffic. Yeah. And just encouraging pedestrian traffic increases that metric.
1: Absolutely, and, and encouraging pedestrian traffic means that other traffic tends to go more slowly, So, which, which both increases safety, it increases the perception of safety, which is often as important, and it, it um, allows more opportunity for social contact. Yeah, I mean, so I, I,
0: I, fortunately or unfortunately, it was a good experience, but I lived for a year in Calgary. Oh, interesting, okay. And Calgary doesn't have anything remotely resembling a complete street. No,
1: they're um, getting better now. By the way, I, I, was when, right
0: I was there when I was there when put in the bike lanes. Right, it was an amazing transformation. But it was still so far from Richard Street where I live right now. Like I live right. in the old Richards and Richards location next to you know Madame Cleo's, the old brothel. We, oh, nice. And we have and it's the the house that Madame Cleo's operated out of is actually yeah. part of our strata, and we have terror oh, did- I know. And we have terrorism insurance. I was reading through this and was going, wait, this is the site of one of the most debauched uh, nightclubs in Vancouver, a brothel, and we have terrorism insurance.
1: That's the trifecta. We've got (laughs) to move in here. (laughs) That's amazing. What a great story. Yeah. Where's your hometown, Michael?
0: Uh, hometown, what I consider my hometown is North Bay, Ontario. Uh, I've got, got it. Yeah. North Bay, Ontario, I moved twice. Toronto, I moved to twice. Vancouver, I've moved to twice. Right. Got Toronto, it. North Bay was the first place I remember, and I think it was the fourth place
1: I'd lived. So. Right. I'm a small-town Ontario boy, not quite a small town of that. I grew up in Kingston. Um, I know Kingston well, um, but I also yeah. lived in Moosinie and
0: Kappeskasingh.
1: Ah, got it. Northern Ontario. So these oh, are yeah. these are remote, remote communities. Yeah. Um, but but let's. I think that the the work that you guys are doing in SODICS and and the the work that we're doing on on the um what we're calling fluid sociability, I think it is important because. We we had this very odd coincidence that 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 you guys identified and 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 our office identified as well, which is that the issue of trying to understand and we we'll want to use agent-based modeling to do it, how uh, people move around spaces and how that affects their possibility for interaction, is something that's really understudied and. We were kind of, to be honest, we felt like we were rolling a rock uphill to get funding for the a Major Public American Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which has been done an extraordinary job of giving us some real um, generous funding to help advance this conversation. Um, so we were moving forward and then we had this odd coincidence that suddenly the issue of how people, what, what people's bubble around them in spaces became a huge hot topic for, because of the COVID-19 fiasco. Yes, and so uh, and as you pointed out, these are analogous problems. You know um, what we were looking at in the food sociability thing is is eye contact is an essential precursor to people talking to each other. So, how do spaces support or inhibit eye contact? And there's many other other complexities around this. There's a crowding issue. You know, got lots of eye contact opportunity for eye contact in the TTC at rush hour but nobody talks to each other. I mean, yeah, um, there, there are many things that we can't forget. We can't forget the effect of culture. We can't forget the effect of weather. But this very simple thing about how does a city and buildings organize themselves to support or inhibit human connection. You see example of a courtyard versus a double-loaded corridor. Another really simple one that most people get is that uh, if you go think about a single-family street, like a you know, or a duplex, like a, a street in, in the west west side of Toronto or in the east side of Toronto or in the east side of it, normal normal street with normal houses. It's radically different living in a street with garages in the back, where or versus a street where people park in the street. Um, if you have garage in the back, people largely if they use a garage, often they don't. But yeah. people will go, enter their houses through the lane. And if you have a, a street where people park in the street. What happens is people are unloading their groceries on the sidewalk, and that's where you meet your neighbors. Yep. It's really straightforward, but we've never been able to actually quantify that effect and give it a value because what happens is the value of cars should be on your own lot because that means it's easier for people to park on the regular streets is a measurable value, right? Yeah. And
0: the, Alexander had a, um, that pattern as well the laneway pattern. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't I don't remember now because it's been years since I read Alexander, what he said about it, but he he was certainly in favor of it, but the way we, we discuss it in terms of sociability, it's obviously got detrimental effects as well.
1: Well, it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, one of the realities is that most people don't use the garages to actually park cars anyway, um, uh, which no. I've always been pushing the city of Vancouver to do a study about how many people actually use the garages, because we get this huge debate about uh, parking on the street. But it's a simple example, let's say in a scenario where people do use the garages and they're behind the building, is that the, the casual kind of day-to-day interactions of unloading your groceries, putting it, blocking your bike to, to a bike, all those kinds of things suddenly get diminished. And all we're interested in doing is starting to try to understand those in a way that allows us to have it be part of the conversation in design. Uh, we're not suggesting it's the only part of the conversation, but so many um, – uh, So I, that will be transparent. One of my fears around the COVID thing is I do think that, that the forces of isolation will actually have more ammunition. Like, oh, I, oh, think I have a hypothesis. Yeah. I have a
0: hypothesis that open plans – where people can adopt multiple pathways through a, a more open space, yeah, um, but be within 20 feet of each, within, within six meters of each other, but further than two meters from each other, yeah. will start to emerge. Um, Patrick Saunders Hastings, who you haven't met yet, we're going to—he's another member of the board of advisors to Sodex, um, uh-huh. and he's a PhD with pandemic modeling. Um, He's engaged with clients across Canada, helping them understand the risk associated with reopening. Right. Um, And so obviously key to this. But when we were talking with him initially and saying, you know, we'd really love for you to help us understand this because of your depth and background in this. Uh, He said the combination of a fluid sociability score and a social distance a physical distancing score is an mm-hmm. powerful powerful combination because it allows you to optimize as much as possible for
1: both i think that's a, a brilliant observation actually and it's it's um it's interesting the because i do think that the opportunity to try and talk to these two together we have got some advice for example um when we, when our Urban Magnets book was was finally printed in February, where we, we um, one of the advisors who'd helped us in that, uh, the architectural writer, called Adele Weider, said, "Don't even think about releasing it. they will just completely die in this period where social distancing is, is you know, the topic." But I think people get that we don't all want to live in a plastic bubble where we never talk to each other. And it's really important. And this is, I'm going to speak extremely passionately for a moment, Michael, because there's a danger here. And the danger is that the forces of um, suburbanization and isolation will win. And that will actually have catastrophic health effects. Yes, it will. Um, are you aware of the work of Larry Frank? Uh,
0: not, by, not by that name. I may have read something because I read far too much.
1: Um, so, so tell me about Larry Frank's work. Larry Frank is a UBC professor who looks at using very, very large scale database crunching, data crunching, uh, looking at the health effects of where you live. Hmm. So, one of his taglines, for example, is he can tell how long you're going to live by where you live. So, he looks, for example, at the fact that suburban areas where you have to drive a lot. You have a lot of access to drive-through fast foods tend, means that you tend to be heavier, which means you're more prone to diabetes and you yep. get to die faster, right? Absolutely. So really, really large-scale um, um, stuff. And I've been um, talking to Larry recently, and you should actually do a talk with Larry because he's a fascinating guy. And I connected him with this, this guy, um, Eric Rodenbeck, who has a company in San Francisco called Stamen Design. Yep. Yeah and you know stamen because stamen did some preliminary work with us on the fluid sociability work so we're using a lot of kind of an acronyms but i think people are understanding the the, the focus of it part of the challenge with larry's work is it's not easily visible like so we have no, the it's data but statistical he has yeah. And so he has, so what I'm really challenging you to do is, as I, I said, I want you guys to come up with a way to get a New York times headline that says, if we rebuild cities to respond to pandemics, more people will die because I actually believe that's the truth. Um, if we, if we start to generate a, a world where people are in their cars way more often, there'll be more car accidents, there'll be more pollution. And all people, of these are people who use healthy, transit are healthier. They're leaner exactly. because they walk to
0: transit. They stand on transit. They walk up and downstairs. They walk to work. They they're doing all this walking around their commute. Yeah,
1: and I think that the people in years of my position, I do think that that's our, our challenge at the moment is to continue to say yes, we respect and understand, um, and we do recognize that 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 um, you know tools like you guys are building the SODICS are absolutely essential. To start to understand how we respond to these kinds of health catastrophes, but we can't, uh, we can't replace an emergency with a chronic condition. And the challenge is we're, culturally, we're terrible at dealing with chronic conditions and we're good at dealing with emergencies, right? Yeah. And um, this is- I,
0: I've often, I've long railed against suburban living for a multitude of reasons. Some of those reasons are going away. Um, if all cars are electric, Um, um, All heating is electric and all the electricity for all the heating and transportation comes from renewables. It's low carbon. Do I care as much? No. You know, do I think McMansions are uh, soulless, devoid of taste, pastiche, architecture, stepped on Palladian crap? Yes, I do. Do I think they're emotionally unhealthy for the people who live in them? Yes, I do. But they, they can choose that. Without
1: having, yeah, they can do and, and yeah. it's not our job to be to be to be pretentious and you no. know um, an academic and say, yeah, no, you, this is you, this is what you want. We should we shouldn't say that's not okay. And the, the societal impact implications are lower, but Frank's
0: work says there are still societal impacts. We are creating a chronic
1: health problem. We are. And, and I think that that and and the, and we're also creating. I mean, the environmental impacts are not just energy use. There are things like paving over farmland. Yeah. Um, there, there are multiple, multiple layers of it. But but if you look, and you you, uh, you and I both share a passion for the for finding solutions to the climate catastrophe. And one of them, one of the the the, the core challenges. Uh, around the climate catastrophe is is that we don't is it's a full spectrum problem right and we we don't we need to move all the all the all the levers at the same time and uh, um, so for example uh, you were, you know, one of the things we haven't touched on, which is a whole other conversation, is the embodied carbon issue, for example. Mm-hmm. So a giant house will also have a huge amount of embodied carbon and in some cases maybe more embodied carbon than it will use in energy over its entire time. Yeah. Um, um, um,
0: yeah these, uh, I did a, did some math a while ago. Um, the average wind turbine re-engineered, um, you know, uh, reinforced concrete base only uses as much concrete as about six and a half average American homes.
1: Right. Well, that's interesting. It was a, that's, you know, that's a great and useful statistic. Yeah,
0: it was. Oh, I, I I love finding these useful statistics. You could actually, you know, um, here's here's my, one of my other favorite ones from last year. Um, you could power the, provide the all of the energy use for all energy services for the United States with wind farms that would fit in half of Delaware. Right now, of course, that's is without that them amazing. being spaced appropriately. But you're just considering the actual space they take up. You have to spread them out more. But the space between wind, wind turbines is useful. But if you pack them all together, they Delaware, right? <laughs> the tiny state. Um, we are closing out. Um, there's two things I just want to touch on. So, um, you know, Chris was going to talk to you about this. I'll talk with you about it now. We just launched. Um, you know, a soft launch, a um, kind of a publication that overlaps with our joint concerns, architecture Mm -hmm. and climate and data and uh, sociability. And it's, you know, um, uh, literally last night I stood it up and media, it's on a medium and they're curating, curators have already picked up the first three pieces I've pushed into there to, you know, spread through um, environment and stuff like that. I think Medium's marketing program is to encourage new publications. <laughs> but the point there is that it's going to be a place where um, I'll co-author a bunch of pieces with people like you, with people like Patrick Saunders Hastings. I'll get David to contribute some of his thoughts around some of the built environment that he's observed, um, having done deep work in space syntax and established you know, the, all the graph theory stuff that's necessary for RAPID's mapping out of all these unique paths Um, but it's a a multidisciplinary journal that's lightweight accessible closer to a blog but it's a communal space for shared thinking about an overlapping set of problems by multidisciplinary people so i'm going to invite you to join in as we move that forward i'll I'll send you the link and stuff but the place i want to close is human studios futures Tell us what you're doing about that. I, I I will admit that I spent, I think, an hour and a half this morning playing with creating my submission for um, for futures.
1: So, oh well, that's great. So well, we, we wanted to find uh, a very simple like if if let's if all all of the conversations that we've had. Today, really, I would say they've been under a very broad framework of wh- what have cities done in the past that's worked, and what 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 are cities going to do in the future, especially responding to this particular um, pandemic catastrophe. So we we wanted to find a way. We, we sort of had lots of debates about do we take a, a, an absolutely firm position about this is what it is, and we recognize that 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 this is kind of a what's called a crowdsource problem, right? <laughs> Um that that we wanted to uh, have us have a forum where people could be um, speculative, you know that and and so all we did is we said, okay, let's let's kind of imagine this as an Instagram release, and maybe it's a show when we build it out. but it it's it's all we're doing is that we're defining our frame framework. Or we're defining the edges of a playground. and we want people who are both serious thinkers and playful thinkers to say, uh, how could we inhabit this playground and then have those things? Because I guess what we, what, what we think is that the, the, one of the great triumphs that I think we've achieved in Canada is, is that we have accepted a whole series of different perspectives on the world in a positive way. If not universal, I don't want to downplay real racism and homophobia and the things that are, still exist and we can't ignore them. But what we're curious about is how do people bring individual passions to a collective problem? and find a way to, to build a, a little bit of a story about that.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because it's specifically a constrained, the constraints are interesting. You've chosen right. the um, nine by, uh, 16 by nine ratio, or nine by 16 ratio, nine by 16 ratio, no, 16 by nine <laughs> ratio, Instagram ratio.
1: The Instagram ratio. ratio. You just call it the Instagram ratio. The, the, iPhone,
0: iPhone, the, you know, the um, naive iPhone video ratio. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, one of the observations I've always made about creation is that establishing a constraint set is not a limitation, it creates a new set of opportunities. Yes. Um, I was t- telling, yes, talking yesterday with a couple of people about you know, the book I wrote, a, a novel I wrote a few years ago. Um, my constraint was, as someone who did a lot of cryptic crosswords, is that every time I solved a cryptic crossword for months, I would take the word list and shove it into a notional chapter.
1: Oh, what a wonderful idea. And
0: then my constraint was I had to use every word in the chapters, in orders. And it was nouns, adverbs, adjectives, character, place, setting, foods. And it, right. it was highly constraining at one level, and it didn't always work perfectly. There's only one thing I'm going to actually change. Yeah. But, but it enabled me to just say, oh, well, you know, what color is this? Well, the space is purple because that's the word I've got. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it took me, you know, uh, a month of spare time coffee breaks lunch breaks before work uh, to write 50,000 word novel right but it was constraint based so and i think well, the instagram stuff i'm going to be fascinated to see what the results are with instagrams futures
1: yeah, I'm optimistic. I mean, it might be the whole thing might be a disaster. You never know. But but I do think that we're trying to. I think your idea, the way you frame it, is beautiful because I and I, and I said earlier in this conversation that one of the things you and I obviously share is we get distracted by not distracted, but we're we're interested in multiple things. And I think for people like you and I to have some boundaries um, it can be quite helpful. I would agree with that. There's just so yeah.
0: many ways you can wander off into the wilderness and not deliver anything of any merit. So some boundaries are good. And on that note, we've come to the boundary of our time together today, Bruce. Um, It's been a wonderful conversation. So for people who, you know, came in later or only listened to the second half and missed this, it's Bruce Hayden, architect, uh, urbanist, author, you know, worked on some of the most beautiful buildings in Vancouver, um, and someone who's doing some very interesting work with his Human Studios organization around creating spaces that enable people to interact socially better. Something that's so important as we are in a period of physical distancing. As we emerge, yes. what do we create? And Bruce is working at that spot. Bruce, thank you so much for being here.
1: Michael, I'm honored to be part of the conversation. It's been really enjoyable, and, and I will take away some real, um, real gems from this. So I'm very appreciative of that. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Cleantech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more Cleantech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund a Cleantech Talk.